From the in-town Jewish Academy in Atlanta, Georgia, I am Rabbi Ari Solish, and this is Knowledge on the Deeper Side. In this podcast, we discuss the most inspiring and stimulating Jewish ideas, ideas that challenge the way you think and feel. To sponsor a class or episode, please visit intownjewishacademy.org slash sponsor. And now, on to the episode. All right, welcome to Daily Power Parsha. All right, today is Wednesday, July 27th, and we are here to study Torah. Um, Torah portion this week, we have a double portion, Matot Mase, or Matos Mase. And uh, today, of course, being Wednesday, so always the Wednesday of a double portion is when we finish off the first of the two and start the second of the two Torah portions. And that's exactly what we're going to do today. So as we left off yesterday, we were in a, pr- a pretty dramatic um, experience where, or dramatic episode, where the, uh, the tribes of Ruvain and God came to Moses and said to Moses, hey, let's, uh, we'd like to settle here. We don't want to go any further. We don't want to go into the land of Israel. We don't want to... Uh, take a portion of that land. We like this land right here. We have a lot of cattle. This land is absolutely fantastic for cattle. So uh, let's just settle right here. Let's just settle right here. And Moses immediately gets triggered, um, if that's the correct term. You know, far far be it from me to uh, to assume anything with Moses, but nonetheless, it seems like he gets triggered. And he says, number one, um, he says. You're, you're, you're going to stay here and settle while your brothers go into war, go into battle. They're going to fight and you're not going to fight. It's not right. It's not fair. Number one. Number two, by you not going into the land, by you not joining the war effort, that's going to discourage everyone else. And everyone will say, well, hold on. Wait a second. If they're afraid to fight, then maybe this fight is not a good idea. Maybe we shouldn't go into the land. And then it's going to cause a disheartening of the entire nation. And then Moses says, the third point is, this story played out exactly the same way 40 years prior, where your ancestors, where your parents, this, and the, the, with the sin of the spies, where they came back and gave a, 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 a negative report, the people became disillusioned, and ultimately it caused wandering for 40 years. This is happening again, Moses says, this is an absolute disaster. How could you do this? And so they, they reply after Moses kind of uh, lays into them, and they say to Moses, it was not our intention. It was not at all our intention to, um, to dishearten anybody or to not even uh, you know, uh, um, pull our own weight. On the contrary, we will be, we're ready to go, we're ready to fight. Here's what we want to do. We want to leave our family, our children and our wives, we want to leave them here. Build, build uh, well they said the, the order, we'll build pens for our animals and houses for our kids. We'll, we'll, we'll create the safety and security that they need. And then we'll go ahead together with the, with the other tribes. The men will go ahead. The soldiers will go with the other tribes and fight the battles. We'll be on the front lines. And then after everyone is settled, all the battles have been fought. And, and one, we'll go back home to our families. Okay? So uh, that, was the, that, that was the explanation of the offer. Now, the commentaries actually get into this question. Was that the initial intention of Reuven and God? Or once they heard Moses put back, push back, did they say kind of, whoops, okay, well, let's modify our ask. 
It's not clear. I'd like to think that they had this in mind from the beginning, and Moses kind of just misread them. But either way, that is, uh, that is how they clarify their position. All right, let me share my screen. Let's jump into reading number four for Wednesday. So Numbers chapter 32, verse 20. So Moses said to them, this is after they, they qualified their request, Moses said to them, if you do this thing, in other words, if you arm yourselves for battle before the Lord, and your armed forces crosses the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies before him. So in other words, if you are willing to go in battle indeed, and you go in to face the enemy, and the land will be conquered before the Lord, so assuming all goes well and you participate in that, then afterwards you may return and you shall be freed of your obligation from the Lord and from Israel. And this land, this land meaning this land on the other side, on the eastern side of the Jordan, the land outside of Israel, this land that you request will become your heritage before the Lord. Basically, I will agree, I will have agreed to your, I will have agreed to your, um, your, um, your request. Yeah, Sarah. Uh, freed of your obligation from the Lord and from Israel. Oh, you're saying what does that mean? Yeah, my understanding is, and we'll we'll wait to, to we'll we'll hold off all uh, final, you know, final remarks until we read Rashi. But my understanding would be that you are free from your obligation to be part of it. In other words, because you have been part of it, because you're going to go to fight, then you'll be freed from the overarching obligation that everybody's supposed to go in. So, you know, there, no one's, no one will, uh, and uh, no longer will there be a claim against you. So if you go, if you go into battle, you, you're at the head of the battle with, uh, with your brothers, then, then that's it. You're, you're, there's no more obligation. No, nothing, you know, nothing is, uh, is going to be held against you or over your head. That's it. You're good to go. I think that's what it. That's that's the way I'm I'm understanding it. But that being said, let's toggle Rashi, and Rashi does not comment. Freed of your obligation, Rashi does not comment. However, give me a quick second because I can pull some commentaries. So one advantage of having my books nearby is that I have the Mikrod Gadolot. And we can see if there's any other commentaries that appear on the page. All right, we have Pinchas, Matos. All right, let's see what we got here. It's interesting, when Rashi doesn't comment, it usually means that Rashi believes that the student will understand it on their own, or based on some a comment that he has, um, that he has already given. So let's see. Vayisi Nikiim. See if we have any um, commentaries here that I can find. You will be free. I do not see anything right here on the page. Nope. Okay. So I guess we'll go with a simple, with, I don't know, I don't know if it's simple. We'll go with the, with the basic understanding that it means freed from any further obligation. In other words, it will no longer be said 
or it cannot be said about you that, oh, you didn't want to go into Israel or, you know, you, you didn't do the right thing. That's it. That's all, all. What you need to do is, as you, as you yourselves have offered, is to fight along your brethren. Don't, pull, don't uh, jump out of the war. Pull out of the war effort early. But assuming that you're there until the end, until everything has been conquered, until, uh, you know, the dust is settled, then at that point, you are under no uh, additional obligation. Okay, and this land, again, this land, meaning the land that you requested outside of Israel, that will become your heritage before the Lord. However, verse 23, but if you do not do so, if you don't go into war or into the battles, but or if you start, but then, and then you're like, ah, I don't need this. We have a place back, you know, on the other side of the river. If you don't fulfill your obligation, behold, you will have sinned against the Lord and be aware of your sin, which will find you. Wow, look at that. Be aware of your sin, which will find you, and that is a not-so-veiled threat, essentially saying that this will come back to you. Don't think that you can run away from this. This is not going to be something that you can run away. This will find you if you don't fulfill your obligation. So he says in conclusion, Moses says to the two tribes, Reuben and God, build yourselves cities for your children. And, and here is what Rashi mentioned yesterday where he corrects their priorities. So build yourself cities for your children, for your families, and in, secondarily, enclosures for your sheep, right? Build, uh, build you know, places for your life, for your animals, and what has proceeded from your mouth, you shall do, you must keep what you yourselves have offered to do. All right, verse 25, and here we get confirmation. The descendants of God and the sense of Reuven spoke to Moses saying, your servants will do as my master commands. Yes, you got a deal. Our children and our and our wives, our livestock and our cattle, here they prioritize, prioritize it correctly. They will remain there in the cities of Gilead, i.e. in the Transjordan, on the eastern side of, outside of Israel, on the, on the eastern border, outside the eastern border. But your servants, the men of military age, will cross over and, and, and who, who, who are the ones that will do that? All who are armed for combat, in other words, those that are eligible for the army, before the Lord, for the battle, as my master has spoken. So, and it's going back and forth a bunch of times. They ask for the land. Moses pushes back. They qualify their offer. Moses says, okay, if you do this, then fine. And they say, yes, we will do this. And they specify exactly what they will do. At this point, Moses is bringing in those that can hold them accountable. Because remember, Moses is going to pass away before they enter the land of Israel, before any of these battles unfold. So therefore, Moses brings in the next leaders, the next generation leaders. Moses commanded Elazar, the Kohen, and Joshua, the son of Nun, right? So initially it was Moses and Aaron. Aaron passed away, Elazar's son took over. Moses will pass away soon and Joshua will take over. So Elazar and Joshua, the next generation leaders, so he, he commanded them, and he also brought in on this all the paternal heads of the tribes of the children of Israel concerning them. Basically, he said, this is the deal that we're making with these two tribes. Everyone needs to know about it. It's completely transparent and hold them accountable for it. Moses said to them, Elazar, um, Joshua, and the heads of the tribes, if the descendants of God and Reuben cross the Jordan with you armed for battle before the Lord, or if they keep their end of the deal, and they go with you across the Jordan with arms, etc. And the land is conquered before you. Then you shall get, in other words, and they see it through to its culmination. 
then and only then you shall give them the land of Gilead as a heritage. Remember, Gilead was this Transjordan land. But if they do not cross over with you armed for battle, in other words, if they um, renege on their, on their promise, then they shall receive a possession among you in the land of Canaan. Then they lose this land. They, do, they will not get this land. They should not get this land. Rather, they should only, uh, like the original plan, they should go into Israel and, um, and, and, and receive that land. Now, you know, I mean, if, if they don't go for battle, then, I mean, what's the punishment? They, they get a piece of the land of Israel? All punishment should be that bad. But nonetheless, the point is that if they break their end of the deal, then they're not going to get this land. The descendants of God. So Moses basically creates this uh, contract. Everyone knows about it. The leadership knows, the future leadership knows about it. Everyone's aware of it. And so the descendants of God and the descendants of Reuben answered, saying, we shall do as the Lord has spoken to your servants. And, and again, this has gone back and forth now already, I don't know, it feels like a dozen times, right? But it's, once again, they say, yes, we will do this. And then they specify, as we know, we shall cross over in an armed force before the Lord to the land of Canaan. And then, after that, we shall have the possession of our inheritance on this side of the Jordan. Wow. So after all that dialogue and clarification, and all the, the contracts are signed and the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted, then Moses gave the descendants of God and the descendants of Reuben, and he brings in a third element. And half the tribe of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, he brought in Manasseh. We'll talk about why soon. Because originally only God and Reuben had asked for it, for the Transjordan land. Now he also brings in half of Manasseh. Okay? And he gave to them, what did he give to them? The kingdom of Sichon, king of the Amorites. And the kingdom of O, king of Bashan. The land together with its cities, within borders, the cities of the surrounding territory. So he gave them that land. Remember, Sichon and Og, those are the two uh, um, kings and nations. Sichon, the king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, those are the ones that, uh, that went to, to war, provoked war against the Jewish people. The Jewish people defeated them. At this point, they had the land. So Moses says, all right, we're going to formalize it. This land officially belongs to God, Reuben, and half of Manasseh, and that's it. Which lands, which territories, specifically which cities? The descendants of, oh, sorry. So that, those, those are the territories. Then the Torah tells us the cities that they built. The descendants of God built Divon and Natarot and Aroer, Aroer, and Atro, I'm looking at the Hebrew, Atrot, Shofan, and Yazer, and Yagbaha, and Beit Nimra, and Beit Haran, fortified cities and sheepfolds. So that's what God built. Those are the cities that God built. What about Reuven? The stents of Reuven built Cheshbon and El-Oleh and Kiryasayim and Nebo, or Nebo and Baal-Maon, their names having been changed, okay, and Sibma. And they were called with names of the cities 
They were called with names of the names of the cities they built. So that's God and Ruvain. And what about half of Manasseh? The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, went to Gilead and conquered it, driving out the Amorites who were there. So apparently there was still one piece that was still occupied by Amorites while they went in and drove away the Amorites. Moses gave Gilead to Machir, the son of Manasseh, and he settled in it. Yair, the son of Manasseh, remember there's so... Manasseh had multiple sons. Machir was given Gilead. And what about Yair? Yair, son of Manasseh, went and conquered their hamlets and called them the hamlets of Yair. What a beautiful name. Chavot Yair, the hamlets of Yair. Nova, Novach, Novach went and conquered Kenat and its surrounding villages and called it Nobach after his name. He named it for himself. So Manasseh's three sons, Machir, Yair, and Nobach, that was half of Manasseh, those three families, and they each took some territories in that Transjordan land. So here the Torah specifies exactly what God got, exactly what Reuben got, and exactly what Manasseh got with these three elements, these three families within Manasseh. I believe Manasseh had a total of six families that, that inherited uh, the land, so three and three. All right. Um, that's how the first Torah portion ends. That's how Matot ends. We're going to start Maseh soon, but first Rashi, right? We're going to start there in a moment, but first let's go back and let's see Rashi. Rashi, for your sheep. Okay, that we have a grammatical Rashi. We're going to skip that. And what has proceeded from your mouth, you shall do, Rashi. That's what Moses tells the tribes. For the sake of the Most High God, uh, make sure you do this. For you have undertaken to cross over for battle until the completion of conquest and the apportionment of the land. Now, just to be very clear, we know historically it took them seven years to fight the battles once they stepped foot in Israel, once they crossed the Jordan. Seven years in battle and another seven years to settle all the lands. and Divide and settle. Seven and seven, 14 years. So Moses reiterates that the deal is, to clarify, he's clarifying, the deal is that you're not going to go back until the 14 years, all 14 years have passed. Seven of conquering, seven of settling. That's an important clarification. Because Moses had only asked of them, had asked of them only and will be conquered before the Lord after his you may return. In other words, Moses says you have to at least go into Israel and fight until the seven years of battle have been completed. But they undertook, but they upped the offer themselves. They said until they until the other tribes has taken possession, they, they changed it. Moses says, I was only asking for you to fight the battles. But you said you're not going to go back to these lands until everyone else has taken possession. Okay. Thus they themselves added that they would remain seven years while it was divided. And indeed they did, they did so. And Joshua 22 clarifies that that was the case. They, they, seven years they were engaged in battle together with their brothers. And then for the next seven years they remained in Israel until everyone, all the other tribes settled the land and then they went home. They helped them whatever way they could for all 14 years. Okay, 
The sense of God spoke, Vayomer is said in the singular form in the Canaan, they all spoke as one person. In other words, they all were on one page. Commanded concerning them, Lahem, like Alehem, concerning them, concerning the fulfillment of their condition, he appointed Elazar and Joshua, as in the Lord will fight for you. Basically, Elazar and Joshua were appointed as the, um, the enforcers of this contract. Um, okay, and then we shall have possession of our inheritance, Rashi. That is to say, the possession of our inheritance on this side of the Jordan will be in our hands and under our ownership, assuming that we fulfill our conditions. Okay, they built fortified cities. The sense of God built all these cities, fortified cities and sheepfolds, Rashi. This last part of the verse relates to the beginning of the passage, the sense of God built. These cities as fortified cities and sheepfolds. In other words, it wasn't only that these two cities were fortified. No, all the cities, all the Divo and Ataro, all these, all these were fortified, and they had places for the sheep. Remember, fortified cities is important when all your soldiers, all your defenders are overseas. Okay, maybe not overseas, across the river in the land of Israel, fighting other battles. So now you're leaving behind a, a relatively vulnerable population, an unarmed, untrained uh, population. So that seems like a very bad idea, which is why, of course, they built the fortified cities. And for, the, for, their, for their animals, they built the sheepfolds. Let's continue. Nevo, Bama'on. And, and then the Torah says, their names having been changed. What does that mean? Rashi. Nevo and Balmaon were names of pagan deities. Look at that. Look at that. They were named after idols. Mm. Gods, pagan gods. And the Amorites named their towns after their deities. And the descendants of Reuben changed their names to other names. This is the meaning of their names having been changed. Nevo and Balmaon changed to another name. Okay, well, there you go. So Navo and Balmaon, their names haven't been changed. It means originally they were called Navo and Balmaon, but ultimately those were named after idolatry, after, after um, uh, de- uh, pagan deities. So they changed the name. What was the other name? I don't know. Torah doesn't say it. And Sibma, they built Sibma, which is a, a, identical with Sabam, mentioned earlier in verse 3. Okay. Children of Machir, son of Manasseh, went to Gilead, driving out the Amorites, Rashi, driving out, as the Targum Unclus renders it, and drove out. For the um, Okay, then grammatical uh, continues. I, I, and I'm still going to mention, don't worry, I didn't forget, I'm going to mention, clarify why Manasseh was brought in when they did half of Manasseh, when they didn't even ask for it. All right, they're hamlets. Chavotehem. Yeah, they're hamlets. Call them hamlets. Of Yair, since he had no children, since Yair, son of Manasseh, did not have any children, he named them after himself as a memorial. He, he named his own memorial to live in, in his legacy. Uh, they called it Nobach. Okay. Since the name did not remain permanently, it is a silent letter. Okay, I don't know. Well, we'll leave that aside. Um, but a clarification, remember, God and Ruvain, those two tribes came to Moses for the request. And when Moses grants the request, he brings in 
Menashe, half of Menashe. And the question is, who asked for that? And if Moses did that unilaterally, why? That's the big question. The big question is why? So here is one answer that I love, given by the commentaries. Menashe, right, half of Menashe. Menashe was one of the sons of Joseph. In fact, the eldest, the firstborn son of Joseph was Menashe. Menashe, and then Ephraim. And then, of course, we know that Ephraim's ultimate legacy was going to be greater than Menashe, which is why Jacob, their grandfather, crossed his hands when blessing them. Be that as it may, Menashe was the son of Joseph, the firstborn son of Joseph. Who is Joseph? Rashi has told told this to us before. Joseph is someone who loved the land of Israel. How do we know this? Because before his passing, he said, I'm I'm going to die. Make sure when you leave Egypt, make sure to take my bones with me. Bury me in the Holy Land, in the Promised Land. He loved Israel. There's another way that we know this. When Joseph was seduced by Potiphar's wife, right? he worked for Potiphar, and then Potiphar's wife liked Joseph, and so she, she, um, she, tried to, she, she tried to seduce him, and then he wanted to, and then he didn't want to, he ran away, and she had his garment, and whatever it was. So then she tells her husband. She tells her husband the following. She said, this Hebrew slave that you brought home, he attacked me, he assaulted me. She calls him the Hebrew slave. What's Hebrew? Ivri. Hebrew comes from the Hebrew word Ivri, from the word Ivri. Ivri means the other side, the other side of the river. So basically, um, and that's not, that's not the Jordan River, that's probably whatever river is over there. The point, oh, no, no, no I'm sorry. They're called Ivri. I don't know. It's somehow Ivri reflects the idea, Hebrew reflects the idea that Joseph came from, from the land of Canaan, from the land that, that would become Israel. Point is that Joseph wore that, wore his, uh, his origins, his, his, his nationality, as it were, on his sleeve. So that when she wanted to accuse him of assault, she tells her husband, this Hebrew man came and assaulted him. This Hebrew slave came and assaulted him. Joseph was into Israel. It was on his face. Everyone knew him as someone who came from that part of the world, that that land. When he died, he said to his family, make sure you take my remains out of here to the land of Israel. So Moses knows that, 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 that Joseph loves Israel. Manasseh, his firstborn son, certainly loved Israel. And the tribe itself loves Israel. So he thought to himself like this. I'm making a deal. It's a risky deal. Because Moses is going to pass away before the deal you know, is able to be applied. So it's a bit of a risky deal. What's the risk? The risk is that these two tribes say, see you later. We're not doing it. We're just settling here. We're not going to go fight any battles. We're just going to totally duck out of our obligation. So Moses wants to put a little bit of an insurance policy on this. So he chooses as an extra extra uh, a party in this, basically like a guarantor and a loan. Like, sure, you can sign on it, but I'd really like that guy to sign on it because I trust that guy. Moses says, I trust Menashe because he's from Joseph. Joseph loves Israel. 
there's not going to be any shenanigans. If we bring Menashe in on this deal, then they're definitely going to fight together. They're definitely going to make sure that all you guys fight with the rest of the tribes to conquer the land of Israel and to settle it and then come back here. Joseph, Menashe, sorry, half of Menashe is the ultimate insurance policy and the guarantor that this deal will be fulfilled uh, properly. Okay, hope that makes sense. Let's jump back in. Let's continue with the second half of the reading. Rabbi. Yeah. Can I, so to clarify, I found something in my Chumash, it's Yoma 38a, about the then you shall have satisfied your commitment. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's just, it's what you've told us before. But it's, um, this conveys a moral lesson. It's not enough to want to know that to know that one's actions are proper in God's eyes. One must also act in such a way as not to engender suspicion on the part of human beings. Oh, I love that. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, 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 that's really good. That is really good. No, I, it's funny because I did see, I did see there was a Talmudic passage that was quoted But I didn't see that. I didn't see it there. I see Psachim thirteen. What was it? Yuma. What was it? Yoma. Which which page? Thirty-eight A. Oh, okay, here but it is. My question came from the. Let me go back to this on the internet. And you shall be freed of your obligation from the Lord and from Israel. Right. But this is just yeah. Then you shall have satisfied your commitment. The is it Vihiyusim Nikim. Yeah, Yisam Nikim, yeah. What's so interesting is, yeah, I do see it is actually here. Um, it says, Okay, basically the, the Talmud in Yoma 38, because the Yom, Yoma, the tractate Yoma is about Yom Kippur. Yoma is like the day, which day? The day of Yom Kippur. That's the tractate all about the Yom Kippur. So it talks about on 38.8 apparently, it talks about the ketores, the incense. And it says that there was a family. Here, I'm going to read this. Um, Beis Garmu, the house of Garmu. It's like the house of Prada, whatever. Like that was the name. Oh, sorry. They were experts in the showbread and how to make it. And this is why they're praiseworthy. Oh, Haley. There was never, um, their kids never walked around with bread, <laughs> with clean bread. <laughs> so that no one should ever say that, ah, the bakers of the showbread for the temple giving their kids from the showbread, right? They're kind of siphoning off from the side. Um, <laughs> to fulfill what's stated and be free, be pure in the eyes of Hashem and from Israel. Base Aftinos. The house of Aftinos, how he became my secretaries. They were experts in making the incense, and that's what I started saying. And this is why they're praised. No, no bride from that family ever went out with perfume. And when the sons of that family would marry a girl from another family, they would they would make a condition. With the with the with the the wife to be with the potential uh, uh, bride, that they should that, that she should not wear perfume. 
so that no one should ever say that they're using the formula of the incense for their own personal perfume. So basically, this is about being above board. Um, I guess it's, and it's derived from this verse. Now, are they being above board here or are they just fulfilling their obligation? I don't know. But yeah, that is, um, that is the associated Talmudic passage. Um, I think the simple meaning, though, is probably still kind of what, you know, be free from your obligation and whatever. But I think it means, oh, Shia. Want to say hi? <laughs> you don't have to. Shai and Shalm came back from camp. There you go. All right, awesome. Hey, Ali. Hi. Oh, wow. We got everybody here. Got everybody. Two out of four. Is everybody else over there? All right. You're hungry? Go grab food. Okay, soon. All right. Of course. Okay. All right, let's go back inside. All right, so now let's start. I also think along those lines, I'm now, I'm now recalling, and thank you for mentioning that because you, you got me thinking about a few things, including, including there's, a, yeah, you can have it. There is a, um, I think there's an essay from Jonathan Sachs, Robert Jonathan Sachs, about this, about the, just playing off of this passage in the Talmud, about how important it is to do things in such a way that intentionally do not evoke suspicion in the eyes of anyone. Because that would be essentially setting them up to suspect you, which would put them, you know, in a negative place. We shouldn't be suspecting other people, nor should we be doing things that are suspicious that then evoke suspicion because then we're putting a stumbling block in front of the blind. So it's about us kind of, it's about everyone. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like um, thinking through, and that's not the word, whatever. It's, it's oh, anticipating. It's, it's anticipating what might evoke some, yeah, might, what might evoke suspicion in someone else's mind and then not doing that. Just, to, just so that we're totally above board. All right, let's go back inside and let's go to... Toggle Rashi off and jump into Masse. All right, Ela Masse, Numbers chapter 33. These are the journeys of the children of Israel who left the land of Egypt in their legions under the charge of Moses and Aaron. So now the Torah, the last Torah portion of the book of Bamidbar, is going to talk about the journeys. All of the stops along the way, I mean, it makes sense because we're at the border of Israel right now, we're knocking on the door. And so the Torah is now going to trace the journey from Egypt to the border of Israel over the 40 years. Here we go. Um, Moses recorded their starting points for their journeys according to the word of, of the Lord. So it's not like they just traveled aimlessly, but they, he recorded the starting points. He recorded the cities or the places. And these were the journeys with their starting points, and now we're going to list them. They journeyed from Ramses, Ramses. That was, of course, in Egypt in the first month, in the 15th day of the first month, that's the 15th day of Nisan, on the day following the Passover sacrifice. Remember, the Passover sacrifice is done Erev Pesach on the 14th. So the first day of Passover, which would be the 15th of the month of Nisan, is when they made that first journey. The children of Israel left triumphantly before the eyes of all the Egyptians. In the Hebrew, it's not triumphantly, it's Biyad Ramah which means with an elevated arm or an elevated hand. 
What does that mean? I guess triumphantly. It's like a, an, a, an awkward um, expression in the Hebrew to translate literally. And the Egyptians were busy burying their dead because the Lord had struck down their firstborn and had wrought vengeance against their deities. So the Egyptians were all busy while the Jews were journeying. That was journey number one. The, journey, uh, the children of Israel journeyed from Ram, uh, Ramses and camped in Sukkot. That was the first journey out of Egypt. Um, yeah. Okay. I want to share an insight soon. They journeyed from Sukkot and camped in, in uh, Etam at the edge of the desert. They journeyed from Etam and, and camped in Pihachirot, which faces Baal Tzaphon, and they camped in front of Migdol. They journeyed from, uh, from Pnei Hachirot, that's the same thing as Pihachirot, and crossed in the midst of the sea to the desert. They walked for three days in the desert of Etam and camped in Marah. That's when they complained about the water being bitter. They journeyed from Marah and arrived in Elim. And in Elim there were 12 springs of water, and 70 palm trees. How lovely. And they camped there. The implication, of course, 12 springs of water, one for each tribe, 70 palm trees corresponding to the 70 elders. They journeyed from Elim and camped by the Red Sea. Of course, that's when they faced the challenge of the Egyptians that had caught up with them, pinned them against the sea. They journeyed from the Red Sea and camped in the desert of Sin, Midbar Sin. They journeyed from the desert of Sin and camped in Dafka. Love how the PH here is the F sound. Dafka. They journeyed from Dafka and camped in Alush. They journeyed from Alush and camped in Rafidim. But once again, there was no water for the people to drink. They journeyed from Rafidim and camped in the Sinai Desert. Okay, they journeyed from the Sinai Desert and camped in Kivrot Ataiva. So that's when they complained about the meat and they got the quail and some of them died. They journeyed from Kivrot Ataiva. By the way, Kivrot Ataiva literally means, Kivrot means the burial. Hataiva means of, of um, desire. So those that desired the meat, Kivrot, were buried. They journeyed from Kivrot Ataiva and camped in Chatserot. They journeyed from Chatserot and camped in Ritma. Oh, hey, Shalom, say hi. You don't have to. Good. Oh, hey, Reeves. Hi. Hey. And Reva. Okay. You guys can grab food. Yeah, it's a microphone. Don't okay. Next. They, okay, go. Um, Shalom's your chef. Right here. Okay. They journey from Ritma. They journey from Ritma. And they camped in Rimon Paretz. They journeyed from Rimon Peretz, Peretz, and camped in Livna. They journeyed from Livna, camped in Risa. They journeyed from Risa and camped in Kehelata. They journeyed from Kehelata and camped in Mount Shafer. They journeyed from Mount Shafer and camped in Charada. They journeyed from Charada and camped in Makhelot. Wow, a lot of journeys. They journeyed from Makhelot and camped in Tachat. They journeyed from Tachat and camped in Tarach. They journeyed from Tarach and camped in Mitka. They journeyed from Mitka and camped in Chashmona. They journeyed from Chashmona and camped in Moserot. They journeyed from Moserot and camped in Bnei Yakon. By the way, most of these places, we don't know what happened. The to- I mean, over the 40 years of journeying, we, we know like, I mean, a handful, certainly, but we don't know like 
all the places. We don't know stories and incidents. I guess there was nondescript, or at least for us, no lessons to be drawn for our lives. Okay. They journeyed from Bnei Yaakon and camped in Chor HaGidgah. They journeyed from Chor HaGidgah and camped in Yatvasa. They journeyed from Yatvasa and camped in Avrona. They journeyed from Avrona and camped in Etzion Gaver. They journeyed from Etzion Gaver and camped in the desert of Tzin, which is Kadesh. Kadesh. That's big. Um... That's Kadesh at the end of the four years, though. There was Kadesh before, that's where they sinned with the spies. But this is Kadesh again now in the final approach. They journeyed from Kadesh and camped at Mount Har, or Har Hahar, uh, which is at the edge of the land of Edom. This just happened, right? And Aaron the Kohen ascended Mount Har at the Lord's bidding and died there, as we read about in the previous Torah portion. On the, on the first day, oh, the Torah here tells us when he passed away. On the first day of the fifth month, that is Rosh Chodesh Av, right? Nisan Iyar Sivan Tamas Av. The first day of Av, which is Rosh Chodesh Av, which is this week, Friday. One second. What? No, I'll put it back. All right, so he passed away in Rosh Chodesh Av, which is this Friday. Is the anniversary of his passing in the fortieth year of the children of Israel, children of Israel's exodus from Egypt? So yeah, that was just recent. As Moses is recounting these journeys, or the Torah is recounting these journeys, this was something that happened very recently. Of course, Aaron was one hundred and twenty years old. Sorry, one hundred twenty-three years old when he died at Mount Har. Okay, right? Because Moses was one hundred twenty when he died. He died the same year, so he was one twenty-three years, three years older. Miriam, by the way, was one twenty-six. So when she passed away, so she was one twenty-six, one twenty-three, and one. 20. The Canaanite king of Arad, who dwelt in the south in the land of Canaan, heard that the children of Israel had arrived. That's when he started up, when he started fighting after Aaron's passing and the clouds of glory, as we discussed a few weeks ago, clouds of glory dissipated. They journeyed from Mount Har and camped in Salmona. They journeyed from Salmona and camped in Funan. They journeyed from Funan or Punan and camped in Ovot. They journeyed from Ovot and camped at the ruins of Abarim on the Moabite boundary. They journeyed from the ruins and camped in Dibon God. They journeyed from Dibon God and camped in Almon Divla Saima. Or Divla Taima. They journeyed from Almon Divla Taima and camped in the mountains of Abarim, Hareha Avarim, in front of Nebo, Nebo. They journeyed from the mountains of Abarim and camped in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. They camped along the Jordan from Bet Yeshimo to Avel, Avel, Shittim in the plains of Moab. And that's where they were, in the plains of Moab, right by the Jordan at Jericho, right across or at the border of the land of Israel. All told, and it's hard to keep track with these diverse numbers, there were 42 journeys, 42 stops along the way. Let's do Rashi, and then I want to share a few ideas. But first, Rashi. Okay, let's, uh, let's see what we got here. These are the journeys. Rashi asked the obvious question, why were these journeys recorded? Like, what's the lesson? Okay, so now we know all the names. 42 journeys. Okay, why? Rashi, to inform us of the kind deeds of the omnipresent of Hashem. For although he issued, although God issued a decree to move them around from place to place and to make them wander in the desert, you should not say, 
that they were moving about and wandering from station to station for all 40 years. And they had no rest. Because, here's why. In other words, Rashi's saying, based on the recording of all the journeys, what's, what, what emerges is that for most of the 40 years, they didn't move. God didn't drive them crazy. Why? Because, all told, as I just mentioned, there are only 42 stages. Stages? Only 42 journeys, segments. Now, deduct 14 of them, because the first 14, for they all took place in the first year, before the decree. From when they journeyed from Ramses, Ramses until they arrived in Ritma, from where the spies were sent. As it says, the people journeyed from Chatzera and camped the desert of Parm. Send for yourself men. And here it says they journeyed from Chatzera and camped at Ritma, teaching us that Ritma was in the desert of Parm. Okay, that's just a proof text. The point is that the first 14 journeys were all done in the first year before the decree of 40 years of wandering was even specified. Subtract a further eight stages, which took place after Aaron's death from Mount Har to the plains of Moab during the 40th year. Now, as you, rec- I think we talked about this. After Aaron passed away and Amalek attacked, the people felt a little disheartened. Oh, because they were also journeying in a, in a roundabout way at that time. And so there were some tribes. Um, yeah, of course we discussed this. Yes, we discussed this because there was another Rashi that talked about why the count, you only had 65 families when originally there were 70 families. And we said because some of the families were killed when the Levites were chasing tribes that were fleeing because they, they panicked after Aaron passed away and they were circling and they thought, oh no, here we go again. And so they're like, all right, we're going, we're going, we're going our own way. So they, the people traveled eight steps back after Aaron passed away. So subtract the further... No, you know what? Ugh, I'm sorry. I, I'm making this too complicated. No, scratch. That's true. What I said is true, but that's not what Rashi's saying. He's not saying the, the backtracking ones. He's saying subtract the further eight stages which took place after Aaron's death from Mount Hard to the plains of Moab during the 40th year. Sorry, he's talking about straight up from when Aaron passed away to when they got to the border. That was another, as we saw, is another eight steps. That's forward, not backwards. So... Again, all, all that I said was, was accurate, but, but discard that. Eight steps from Aaron's passing in the 40th year to, the, the, to knocking on the do- doorstep of, of Israel. So 14 plus 8 is already 22. So you will find that throughout the 30 years, so 42 journeys in total, 14 in the first year, 8 in the last year, so that means that throughout the 38 years, they made only 20 journeys. 14 plus 8, and take that away from 42. 22, take away from that, uh, take away from 42, 22, you have 20 left. So over 38 years, minus first year and last year, they only went 20 stops over 40 years, over 38 years. I found this in the commentary of Moshe Darshan, the preacher. Tanchum explains it another way. It is analogous to a king. So, so that's one reason why we're told what the journeys were, so that we should deduce from this that God was very kind. 38 years of wandering, and they only went to 20 different places. Uh, the Tanchuma gives another explanation of why we're told all the journeys. It is analogous to a king whose son became sick. So he took him to a faraway place to have him healed. On his way back, the father began citing all the stages of their journey, saying to him, this is where we sat, here we were cold, here you had a headache, etc. So as the journey finishes, 
we get nostalgic. Oh, there we went to there, and we went to there. So kind of recounting the nostalgia of the journey when things are, are pretty much done. The Egyptians were busy bearing, occupied with their mourning. By the way, there's an amazing talk or insight of the Rebbe on this, Tanchuma. You know, why is it that it used the example of a, of a king and his son who's sick, and he has him healed, and on the way back, they began uh, mentioning all the names. In this case, they didn't go back. They, were, they just traveled one way. They were at the end of the journey. In the example, they were going back. They were retracing the journey. And why sat and cold and headache? Why these specific recollections of the nostalgia of the journey? The Rebbe has a beautiful in, a talk on this and insight um, explaining this in detail. The details of which escape me in the moment, but... It's, uh, I know there's something really beautiful on this. All right, let's continue. Egyptians were busy burying, occupied with their mourning after the 10th plague. Uh, there's not a lot of Rashi on, on some of these uh, uh, journeys. Ritma was really uh, the place where they sent the spies. Ritmas was so named because of the slander of the spies, for it says, what can he give you and what can he add to you, you deceitful tongue, sharpened arrows of a mighty man with coals of brooms, and brooms are risamim, or ritamim, ritma, ritamim, brooms, coals of brooms, and it's talking about deceitful tongue. So what place is ritma? It's a place of deceitful speech, which was the spy, the place where the spies uh, were dispatched and came back to. And again, not a lot of Rashi here. At the Lord's bidding, uh, Aaron passed at the Lord's bidding. Literally, al Hashem, by the mouth of the Lord. This teaches us that he died by divine kiss. Divine kiss, I think we've talked about this before. Divine kiss, obviously, is not anthropomorphic. It, sorry, it's not meant to be taken literally. And it's, it's, uh, it's conceptual. It means a, a very um, seamless and painless uncoupling of, of soul from body, where it just gently, right, gently separates and goes its own way. Um, which, of course, is a peaceful death. The Canaanite heard this to teach you that it was the news of Aaron's death that he heard. And we talked about this before in a previous class, even a Torah studies class, for the clouds of glory had withdrawn, and he thought the Canaanite king of Arab, which is really Amalek, but whatever, he thought that permission had been granted to wage war against Israel. That is why Scripture repeats it here, just to, to emphasize that it was because of Aaron's death that the Canaanite king attacked because he saw the, the, the clouds of glory. We explained a few weeks ago in Torah studies that there were two clouds, or two sets of clouds. One cloud of actual protection, the other one which was a sign of you know, divine uh, hanging out with the people. So when the, 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 not the protective clouds, but the, the clouds indicating divine presence had, had dissipated, had, had melted away, so they thought, all right, so God's no longer with them, let's attack. Um, the ruins of Abarim, it's an expression denoting waste and ruins, as in into a heap in the field. They have turned Jerusalem into heaps. And finally, from Bet Yeshimot to Avel Shittim, it teaches you that the extent of Israel's camp was 12 mil, a mil equaling approximately 3,500 feet. For Rabbi Barachana said, I myself saw that place, and it is three parasangs, 12 mil square. Okay. If these numbers are accurate, and, and I'm not vouching necessarily for this accuracy, 3,500 each mil times 12 mil, okay, equals 42, th- let me try that again, 
3,500 square feet times 12 equals 42,000 square feet. Okay, 42,000 square feet, that's, that was the encampment of the people. For some reason, to me, that sounds like it's not enough space. Nonetheless, that's the number that we have here. All right, Avel Shittim, the plain of Shittim was called Avel. That was its name. All right, I want to clarify, not clarify, I want to um, throw in a few, a few ideas here. Number one, the Baal Shem, uh, the, who was it, the Maggid of Mizrich? I think it's the Maggid. So the Baal Shem Tov was the founder of the Hasidic movement. His primary student was the Maggid of Mizrich. And then the Maggid had many students. Many, all the Hasidic groups come from the Maggid of Mizrich, his students, um, including Chabad. Uh, the Alter Rebbe was a was student of the Maggid. The Maggid said the following. The Maggid says that these 12, Elamase, Ela Masse Bene Yisrael, these are the journeys. These 42 journeys are the same journeys that every human being has in their lifetime. From birth until death, which means the birth would be like the exodus, like the birth, the emerging out of a place of constraint. Mitzrayim, Mitzrayim, means a place of constraint. The birth into the promised land. Eretz the land of life, the land of the living which is really a euphemism also for death. So that is the journey of life. And everyone's life has these 42 journeys in their own way. The Rebbe asks on this, one second. Some of these journeys were not good. Some of these ended in disaster. Plagues and punishments and complaints and all that stuff. And so he explains, the Rebbe explains that yes. Oh, so, so the question is, does that mean that we're all fated to fail? Not necessarily. We're fated to be challenged. How we respond to the challenge, of course, is our own choice. But we know for sure that we're fated. Life is not going to be a smooth and simple journey. There will be ups and downs like these 42 journeys. Sometimes it was great. We got the Torah at Sinai. And sometimes we were faced with an Egyptian army attacking. Sometimes there was no food and water. Sometimes there was a snake attack. Right? You never know what's around the corner. Life also has this way of surprising us. Sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's challenging. We're not necessarily destined to fail. We're destined to be challenged. What we do in, that, in the face of the challenge, that's up to us. That's one insight. Second insight is, and this I'm going to share the screen once again. It says, these are the journeys of the, Jew, of the children of Israel. Asher Yatsu Meretz Mitzrayim, that left Egypt. That left Egypt. In other words, these are the journeys of Israel leaving Egypt. And, and the Rebbe asks, it's asked in the Hasidic books, one second. How many journeys did they take to leave Egypt? One, not 42. These were the journeys that they took in the desert or until Israel. These are not the journeys of leaving Egypt. The the leaving Egypt journey was just the first one. And so, Chassidus explains, the Rebbe explains, that no, not true. Yes, the physical land of Egypt is only the first journey, uh, or leaving the physical land of Egypt is only journey number one. But all the journeys represent leaving Egypt because, again, Egypt uh, means in Hebrew, Meitzar. Mitzrayim or Meitzarim. Mitzrayim, Meitzarim, which means constraints, narrow places. And the message here is like this. We all find ourselves in a in, in limitation, some sort of limitation. It could be holy, a state of holiness, but holiness also has limitations. You know, even if we're doing all the spiritual things that we need to do, there's still, you know, we still have... Uh, 
a level that we're doing it at. And that constitutes our current limitation. And so the message is, no matter what limitation you're in, break out of it. And then tomorrow, break out of that. And then the next day, break out of that. So all of the journeys, all of the ascents, all of the steps are all really leaving Egypt. Egypt is not a once upon a time. The exodus is not, a, is not a one-time deal. It's like, you know, I was struggling with something and then I'm no longer struggling with it. It's not true. You might not be struggling with that, but you're struggling with something. And even struggling with contentedness or contentment of having arrived, that, that itself is its own challenge. The, the, the sense of, you know, I've, I've accomplished. Anyway, so the point is we're always growing. We're always striving. We're always journeying out of Egypt. And if we got out of Egypt yesterday... Great. All that means is we have another exodus to achieve today. All right. Thanks for joining. It's great to see you. Um, tomorrow we are back on. Tonight we have Torah studies. Topic is chosen and holy, the chosen nation. What does that mean? Um, and then, of course, that's, of course, at 730 on Zoom. And then we're back on tomorrow. Okay. Great to see you. Thank you, Rabbi. Pleasure, pleasure. All right, have a great day. See you a little bit later. Take care. All right, bye. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find us online at IntownJewishAcademy.org and on YouTube at IntownJewishAcademy. New episodes of the podcast come out a few times a week. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. It means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you have a wonderful day.